we flash back to World War II. I am joined this morning by author Mark Allen Baker, who has written 19 more books than I have. He's got a book out now in the Arcadia Images of America series called Connecticut in World War II. We'll also talk about some of the other literary work that Mark has done as well. Mark, a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for coming in this morning. And let's start with the World War II book. Tell me your inspiration for writing a book about Connecticut in World War II. Well, thanks for having me first, Wayne. My inspiration was simple. I was going going around Connecticut uh, pitching two early books on Connecticut that I did about the revolution. And once I started talking about Connecticut, the provision state, well, I got to hear some stories. And a lot of those stories went back uh, that we touched on the Civil War, World War One, and then World War Two, And everybody kept on saying, you know, my uncle worked, you know, down electric boat. Uh, the, my other uncle worked at Pratt & Whitney. Uh, you just wouldn't believe what was happening in Connecticut on the home front during World War II, but there was no resource for it. There was nothing I could pick up. There was no scrapbook, per se. And a lot of the people that were talking to me said, you know, if we just had a book, if we just had something I could take my grandchildren through or my great-grandchildren through about World War II, that would be perfect. So I said, you know, that's a Great point. So that was my inspiration behind doing the book. And people who are aware of the Arcadia series, they're very picture-oriented. So what that means in this particular book, perhaps unlike your other 19 books, your job is to write informative captions. Absolutely. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to do it. I squeezed it between two sports biographies, ironically. And there's a lot more discipline involved. So uh, not only do I have to come up with 225 photos, but I have to use the captions to tell my story. So I'm limited in text to about, oh, about 13,000 words versus a biography where I'm unlimited. I, I can make it as long, short as I want. So I like the discipline. I love the series. The series is extraordinarily, po extraordinarily popular. So uh, this gave me the opportunity, and I just took it. I, I just love the opportunity. Now, some of the pictures are pictures you took, especially of significant gravestones, Joe Lewis, for example. But where would you get the rest of the pictures? Where do you find these old <clears throat> pictures? I was looking at these pictures going, wow, I've never seen that kind of thing before. Well, I've been fortunate enough, we've been fortunate enough to have a number of uh, great historical societies around the area, plus the Library of Congress, a fantastic Library of Congress who allows people like myself to download images and include them in, in work such as this. So I, I really have to plug the Library of Congress uh, for their wonderful work. You have a line in the book how the nation turned to Connecticut in World War II the way it did during World War One. What yeah. does that mean? Boy, we earned the provision state. Going all the way back, if you know your history and you know how significant we were during the first year of the Revolution, and then supplying specifically Remington Arms, supplying all the wonderful firearms in World War One, and then in World War Two, every time we're in a conflict. Our nation turns to Connecticut, and Connecticut steps up, and they did in this case. And we can give some examples of that, getting more detailed as we go along, but Manchester Mills for silk, the Waterbury Brass Producers, Bridgeport Remington Arms you mentioned, Electric Boat, Hamilton Propellers, Pratt & Whitney, Colt with uh, pistols and the like. So let, let's back up to what some of these meant to World War II, our national effort, but also the effect on Connecticut. How was silk important from the Manchester Mills to the World War II era? Well, well, one thing immediately comes to mind, and I know some of these people who study World War II will be the first to say, thanks for mentioning that. And that's the name Adeline Gray, one of the women who was the first licensed uh, paratrooper, sky, skydiver, if you will, parachutist. And she was, the, uh, you look at Cheney, 
and their work with DuPont, they used their technology in silk and, and, and fabric to come up with, with the first nylon parachute. And, and she was the first one to actually make the jump. Yeah, I guess we don't have a picture of her in here, but there's a picture, a, a, a far away picture of her actually jumping, apparently. Mm -hmm. I don't know, is that her jumping? I see the importance, as the caption says, the importance of proper folding and rigging of parachutes was well known to Adeline Gray. On June 6, 1942, Adeline made the first jump by a human with a nylon parachute at Brainerd Field in Hartford. Her jump performed before a group of Army officials put the canopy developed by the Pioneer Parachute Company to the test. Is that actually her and the parachute coming down? No, unfortunately it's not, uh, but it's from the era, and I had had her in a composite photo inserted in there, and, got, and they pulled that because they felt that was taken a little bit away from it. But I wanted to include her. She was one of the significant women, and there's so many, and that was my the, my, one of my, the big reasons I did it is the role of women in World War II. But she's a great story, you know. She's the first female parachute, licensed female parachute jumper. She started jumping when she was like 19 years old, uh, and then she made her significant jump when she was 24. But that's the kind of story I wanted to bring to light, and that's that's a perfect example. And, of course, everybody from Manchester knows the Cheney brothers. That was from 1942. And, by the way, across the page from that picture, Amelia Earhart. We've all heard that name. And the Connecticut tie to that, even though it predates World War II, she married a guy from in Noank, Connecticut? Yes, and that was kind of hush-hush at the time. No one really, uh, it just never really surfaced until much later. George Palmer Putnam was the guy who she married back in uh, 1931. The other manufacturing industries that Connecticut was affected by during World War II, Waterbury Brass Producers. So what were some of the things that the brass people did from the Waterbury area? A lot of, a lot of cartridges uh, for, for firearms, a lot of clips, uh, and you're going to, even going back to as far as buttons, uh, one of the neat things that often comes up is, and this is kind of on a sidelight, is, I mean, Waterbury is obviously known for their brass production, but, I mean, buttons. brass city, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the buttons that they, they put on uniforms, and, and nowadays, probably what few, few people recall is they actually do the buttons on the master's jacket in professional golf. And uh, that's kind of a side light, too. Uh, but brass production, I mean, you name it, because you, you remember back then we were going into these corporations and we were, we were retrofitting them to produce whatever the need was. You, you mentioned Remington Arms in Bridgeport. Remington, well-known for, for, for guns and the like. Specifically, what was their contribution to the World War II effort? I think I put in there that they did a lot of pistol production. They, they also did a lot of prototype uh, rifles uh, during the war. Um, but their pistol production primarily, uh, naturally, their, their cartridges and things. But um, over the years, I mean, Remington, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a father-in-law who worked at Remington, and I myself have some of the early prototypes going way, way back of some of the arms. But they did a lot of, of top-secret type work, too, uh, which they, they don't get credit for. And, of course, Electric Boat. Am I talking submarines here from World War II? Yes, we can, t we can talk that. Of course, Electric Boat, just, I mean, so many great, great stories of the training facilities down there and the people who went through uh, that whole area and all the different, you know, uh, training sites that are no longer there. Some of those I actually put in the book for all the veterans who could say, I remember that. 
You also put a picture in the book of some guys just kind of taking it easy there, kind of relaxing back in 1941. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get a kick out of some of these guys because they were so dedicated that a lot of them literally would double up on their shifts. And if they could get their 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 garments laundered in between shifts, they did it. Uh, but they everybody went full blast. There was no such thing as slacking off. Uh, everybody carried as much weight as they possibly could. Mark's caption says, Dedicated workers, both men and women, came in all shapes and sizes and restricted, or so it would appear, only by medical condition. If there was a place exemplary of the everyday worker during the war years, it was Electric Boat Works in Groton. Here, the boys are just taking a bit slow and easy during a 1941 shift change. A couple of guys kind of sprawled out outside of a building down there at EB. How about Hamilton and propellers? Yeah, uh, the propeller development is extraordinary. I was fortunate enough, one of the things I, I did is work with the New England Air Museum, and if anybody ever gets an opportunity to go out and, and view that out in, in um, Windsor, out by the airport, then definitely do it. But they have a lot of prototype engines and a lot of different style propellers that, that, that Hamilton did. And naturally, a uh, few recall that Charles Lindbergh on the Spirit of St. Louis used a, a Hamilton propeller. And that you've got an item in here also on Charles Lindbergh in the book as well. How about Pratt and Whitney? Pratt and Whitney engines. Boy, I mean, you, you talk about significant engine development. And uh, again, I'll refer to the Air Museum doing a fantastic job of actually putting on display a lot of the old prototype engines that were used in, in, the, in the significant aircraft at the time. A couple of the captions that Mark wrote for P&W Shippers and Handlers Preparation 1942, a completed Pratt & Whitney airplane engine ready for installation is prepared for shipment from a large eastern plant. The care taken in producing such fine engines extended even to their packaging. It was this commitment to quality assurance that enabled Connecticut products to arrive undamaged to the armed forces. Now, just one example. Where did that picture come from? That one, that one was actually part of a program uh, that was government-funded and it appeared out of the Library of Congress. But it's a good example of what I was trying to do with the book. The book is about the home front. It's about the, the guys that, that didn't get the recognition because they didn't go overseas, but deserve some level of credit, like so many of the women and the teachers that stayed behind and, and did their part. But no one ever recognizes people like, who's the guys shipping and handling all these engines? Because they build these marvelous engines at Pratt and & Whitney. And you're saying to yourself, now how does that get onto the aircraft? I mean, where does that go? I mean, how do they do all that? And, and I wanted to include people like that, the forgotten folks that played such an important role. And another industry of Connecticut that played a role in World War II, I'm sure World War I too, was Colt. And they were, among other things, pistols? Firearms, absolutely. And uh, did so many things for the Colt family, so many things for the Hartford area. So altruistic after after the, the closing of some of the plants and, and donated their time and effort. And I uh, can't say enough good things about, about Colt firearms. You've got a couple of pictures related to that in here, including... Hartford County, 1900, filling orders for the war, occupied so much time for Colt Manufacturing Company that it ceased production of its popular single-action Army revolver. The company focused on the production M1911A1 pistols, as well as a large number of M1917 water-cooled machine guns, producing over 600,000 quality M1911A1 pistols, earned it the Army-Navy rating of E for excellence. This was Colt's Armory in Hartford, as uh, that's one that uh, you can you drive right by, right? Right yeah, by, right by Dillon Stadium. Right yeah. by it. 
And yeah. it's remarkable. It's just remarkable the transition. Remarkable how these companies would 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 set aside all their their corporate goals in order to meet our needs. And they they knew what they had to do. If it meant retrofitting machinery, drill presses, uh, all sorts of fabrication equipment, they did it. They they set the time aside. They worked with their production lines and 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 they altered their manufacturing in order to meet the needs of our military. Mark, did you get A's in history back in your days in school? Uh, n- not enough, <laughs> but that's a topic unto itself. But uh, nevertheless, I mean, I'm so honored to live in this state. And as I've been going around uh, pitching the Connecticut and World War II book, I've met some just fabulous veterans telling me all these wonderful stories. I mean, you talk about the greatest generation. The greatest generation was there. Talk to these people. Fascinating stories uh, about life on the home front in Connecticut, life overseas, uh, going into occupied Germany, uh, fighting in Normandy. Uh, it's just an incredible, I'm just, I'm just, I mean, shivers, goes, shivers go up my spine every time I sit and talk to these veterans. It's such an honor to be here. So if you didn't ace the history classes back in your school days, when did this passion for history and writing books about history begin to take over? It really started coming about after, well, I always felt an obligation regionally. So I was doing regional history when I lived in central New York, covering the early days of the MBA, which which we talked about earlier. And, yeah. and uh, also talked about, got involved with different museums, including the Baseball Hall of Fame and the Boxing Hall of Fame. So now I'm finding myself writing biographies of famous sports personalities, especially in the area of boxing, and, and just love it. And, and I, I'm just fascinated by it, and I love finding the stories that slip between the cracks. Uh, that's that's the key. This book called Connecticut in World War Two is your twentieth book. What was your first book? The first one, and you're gonna. I was writing in the old days, working for General Electric uh, back in the old days, uh, writing hardware and software articles. And I got a call because I was collecting. This was before the big baseball boom, and I was. Uh, I had assembled a collection of baseball memorabilia from autographs and baseball bats, old bats and uniforms and things like that. And I had a publisher contact me and said, "Would you do a book? This thing's really taken off." and we need a resource and we don't have anybody to write one. So I wrote one and actually did a lot of work with the Baseball Hall of Fame. People like Hillerich and Bradsby turned baseball bats especially for me and that's how I got my start and it migrated uh, like a band who plays bars and ends up playing at Mohegan Sun Arena. Uh, I did the same by working in niche markets and, and finally working my way to biography. Where do people get your book specifically, the latest book, Connecticut in World War II? Oh, they can pick it up anywhere. Barnes & Noble had quite a few copies before the holidays. They can go on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and like I said, all the regional uh, independent bookstores in town as, as well as all the Barnes & Nobles. You touched on it earlier, Mark. I'd like you to develop a little bit more about the contribution of Connecticut women to the World War II effort. Yes, it was simply extraordinary. I had heard before I went into this book stories about how women replace men all across the state on production lines and learn skills that they never dreamed they would ever learn learn from drill presses to all sorts of other you know sophisticated fabrication equipment and And when you start thinking about that, not only did they have to to alter their background in order to fulfill these demands, but they had to take care. Ca- 
care of everything at home. They had to look out after the family. They had to solve issues. They had to, it was just tireless job. And the more I started talking to some of these women, they were telling me extraordinary stories. Some of them holding two jobs, two shifts, uh, asking more out of their children uh, to sacrifice more, to do more. It it was just unbelievable. And, And they stepped up every single time. And the ironic thing out of the whole thing is they really didn't get a formal recognition until 1948 when the Women's Armed Service Integration Act finally passed. I mean, that was the funny thing. And then after that, it seemed like we kind of lost our memory to some extent because some of these women lost the credit. And and it almost like their role diminished a little bit. We didn't... So, I mean, that was... It struck me so hard, and, and I said, you know, I've really got to bring some of that out in the book. And this is women who not only are working in some of those factories that produce war materials we discussed earlier, Manchester Mills, Waterbury Brass, Bridgeport, Remington Arms, Electric Boat, Pratt & Whitney, Hamilton, Colt, and so forth, but they were also stepping forth in just industry or labor force in general, while the men who used to have those jobs are now off on the front lines. Exactly. And they had to put on so many hats. And and they even looked more, I mean, it was a, a huge support system. So a lot of them looked toward the teachers as playing and uh, playing a bigger, bigger role in their own family's development. So I, as I go back and I was looking through all these stories about women, I was also looking at all the stories about the wonderful teachers. And, and teachers had to wear so many hats. They had to be the father, the mother, the psychologist, the, you know, you name it. And they had they stepped up and it was just incredible. You've got over 200 pictures in this book. Tell me about the cover picture and why you picked that picture to be on the cover. I had, I had, like, like any author, you get a chance to have some input with regard to your cover. I had actually chosen a couple from the Air Museum that got re- kind of not rejected. They were great, great images. But when they saw this image of Sikorsky, of, of the guys on the production line, including a gentleman actually inside of a cockpit uh, looking out, it's just it, which you hardly notice, and then a guy uh, doing engine work on the front uh they saw it and they said you know it it's got i told them i said you got to have airplanes you got to have production a production line like this image if you're going to choose anything so we agreed on that and i think it works out well i think it really speaks to what we were doing here the caption inside for that front cover picture says from propellers produced by hamilton standard to engines invented by Pratt & Whitney, Connecticut Ingenuity was on display throughout World War II. Pictured here are factory workers from another pivotal manufacturer, the Vought-Sikorsky Aircraft Corporation. In 1939, United Aircraft moved Vought to Stratford, where its Sikorsky division was located, and renamed the merged divisions Vought-Sikorsky Aircraft, and that's one of your Library of Congress pictures as well. Tell me about the dedication that you had in this book to a couple of your friends. Oh, that's I'm thanks for bringing that up. It's actually a wonderful couple. My uh, roommate from college, who's lived in Connecticut with his family most uh, most of his life, and his wife, who is also a teacher, uh, in in the. Um, she was teaching in the Colchester School District. I hope I get all this right, Anne. And uh, I, they were just, they were our extraordinary friends for, for many, many years. And they really epitomized what I was looking for in a, a dedicated Connecticut family. So I was honored to dedicate the book to them. One of the people that you picture in the book, Norman Rockwell. Perhaps the most noted 20th century American author, painter, and illustrator, Norman Rockwell's works enjoyed a broad popular appeal throughout the United States. 
What was the Norman Rockwell, Connecticut connection? He actually had an older Rockwell ancestor that was one of the, the founders. And I, uh, when I heard that, I had to link that in. And naturally, I bring up the Four Freedoms in the text of, of the publication as well, because I remember even as a kid going into my, my grandmother's house, and those Four Freedoms were displayed everywhere. I mean, everybody had the plates. Uh, they sold millions of copies of them. So I had to put Rockwell in there. And the fact that he actually lived so close to Connecticut and had that link, I said, that's perfect. Yeah, few realize that the artist's earliest American ancestor, John Rockwell, from Somerset, England, was one of the first settlers of Windsor, Connecticut. Right above that, Jackie Robinson. Now, of mm -hmm. course, he had an impact a little later after World War II, but he did have a Connecticut connection from Stanford. Yeah, absolutely. And you, the whole Jackie Robinson story, which is incredible to begin with, almost every step of the way. But even what even what he went through, just in challenges to get a, a place that he felt comfortable to live, and the fact that he chose Connecticut is an honor uh, for us. Mark, tell me about the layout of your book. You've got basically five chapters here. Chapter one, a rendezvous with destiny. And then you move from there to people. Chapter three is places. Chapter four is things. And chapter five is rather short, but it's called in their honor. Yeah, I was looking at a way, Wayne, to, to really put this together simply, but so that everybody could relate to it. And, and I was, we have to go people to get people in the mindset. I had to cover the governors. I had to cover some of the key senators, some of the key individuals who came, you know, presidents, of course, uh, military leaders. And then places, I wanted to go around the state to find the little towns with the interesting stories. And then lastly, a lot of people have artifacts. They have the rationing coupons. They, have, they remember the refrigerators. They remember different aspects, of, like G. Fox, for example, in downtown Hartford. They remember certain things about Connecticut, so I really wanted the things to to be at the end and to spark a lot of interest so they could because that's the things that really start the recollections coming when they start looking at all these little memories that that I included in there, like the rationing book, for example. And that's where I wanted to go next. Tell me about rationing. Here's here's one picture caption: Rationing, comma decision making, 1942. In addition to food. Rationing encompassed clo clothing, shoes, coffee, gasoline, tires, and fuel oil. Some foods, like eggs and milk, were rationed by allocating supplies to shops in proportion to the number of customers registered there. People were permitted one egg per fortnight. That's two weeks. But this, like other foods, was not guaranteed. The partially used ration book is a reminder of the sacrifices made during World War II. Yes, and those, that actual book was belonged to my mother. Uh, believe it or not, and she kept her rationing book. But people forget. Can you imagine having to tell your your teenager that he only has two gallons of gas this week, uh, or or actually he can't only buy one pair of shoes in the next couple months, or that tires aren't going to be so easy to replace on his car? People don't understand the transition that war has on our society, and it's and it's just not. Uh, I mean, everything changes overnight. They forget that, you know, the Germans were knocking off these cargo ships coming with sugar, you know, coming from Latin America, uh, all from everywhere. I mean, the, the Germans were just knocking down all these transportation lines in, in the ocean, and we were missing a lot of these goods. Oh, this is great here. This one picture is, uh, I guess, a poster, and it says, This store is pledged to conform to the sugar regulations of the U.S. Food Administration, and then in big print, your sugar ration is two pounds per month. They actually have bags of sugar on this poster. 
we must confine our consumption of sugar to not more than two pounds per person per month in order to provide a restricted ration to England, France, and Italy. Great stuff. You know, going back to the uh, earlier uh, pictures in the book here, you, you went around and took a lot of pictures of gravestones and the like, and, and it really surprised me in a book about World War II, you got, for example, the gravestone of Joe Lewis. Yeah. Joe, does Joe Lewis have a World War II connection? Well, he actually did some exhibitions here in, in, in the Hartford area, and a lot of people, I heard one story from one, one gentleman who said, you know, I think my uncle fought Joe Lewis here, and, and I'm like, well, he didn't didn't fight here in a regular fight oh no no he did exhibitions here and he was going around raising money uh for to for bonds to buy bonds and and i'm like really so i started digging sure enough i mean joe lewis who was a great patriot never gets the recognition he deserves for everything he did during world war ii including including donating a lot of his salaries but I had to I had to put him in there once I learned that he had actually come through here and actually done conducted some exhibitions and so I I put that in it, it, a lot of people don't realize he was buried in Arlington Cemetery had to get special dispensation from, from Ronald too, Reagan right? yeah. yeah special dispensation yeah and when you Ronald take Reagan. the tour of Arlington which I just did again a couple of years ago they they talk about that they show you where it is uh, Joe Louis Barrow what's the Barrow name on Joe Louis well that's that was his, he went by Joe Louis but it was Joe Louis Barrow that was his formal name. Um, I love this poster here, Private Joe Lewis. They've got a picture of, of a guy. I don't know that that's Joe, but it's a picture of a guy with uh, looks like a machete and uh, uh, or bayonet. And it says, Private Joe Lewis says, we're all going to do our part, and we'll win because we're on God's side. So yeah, that's the story well. of 1942 from Joe Lewis' battle, a favorite wartime recruitment slogan thanks to Joe Lewis Barrow. What is book number 21 going to be for you? What are you working on right now? Book number 21 is on Madison Square Garden. Uh, and I'm Which really, one? Uh, it's like all four. four, four. Yeah. All four. But uh, uh, it really is going to focus on, there's been no really good book um, on the boxing sector and where all the boxing migrated from the early days of the first two renditions up on Madison Square down to... Uh, the second, third rendition, mid Midtown, all the way down to where it is today. So I'm really touching on all those areas, you know, from Friday night fights to the, the literally the heavyweight lineal champions who had actually fought from the very beginning, you know, John L. all the way to Lennox Lewis. Uh, and and it really covers all everything. It covers the Friday night fights, uh, the the little things uh, that you forget about, uh, and uh, it's. Basically, going to be it's a very large book. It's over 400 pages so far. So, so but, far. But yeah. again, it's one of those books I wanted to do. You know, you can't. You go to the bookstore. You're looking for the book. You hear the stories of all these wonderful things that happened in Madison Square Garden that we've lost touch with. But there's nothing that really that did it for me. So I wanted to write it. The world's most famous arena, or as my friend Jody Ambrosio says, if you don't count the Roman Colosseum. Well, lots of pictures in here, and Mark wrote the caption for these pictures, including a caption for Huddy Ledbetter. What's the Connecticut connection to Ledbetter, or Lead Belly, as they called him? Well, I, I chose a couple of musicians, and, and I wanted to choose some of the more off-the-wall, not off-the-wall necessarily, but out of the popular mainstream, so I... I picked up Huddy Ledbetter. I, I figured that would be something that uh, a lot of people, you know, forgot about. I picked up Woody Guthrie. I picked up, uh, well, Frank Sinatra was in the mainstream, but 
basically who, who looks really cool in that picture, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and, and the Sinatra, what I tried to do, the Sinatra brings back an old story. I, I ran into a GI, and he says, you know, I got the perfect picture for it. I was telling him what I was missing. Now, I found a lead belly, lead belly picture. I found a Woody Guthrie picture, but I couldn't get a good Frank Sinatra picture. So the gentleman says, no, I got one. You, you've got to see this to believe it. So he pulls it. He's had it in his wallet the whole time, a picture of Frank that he took on one of the, one of the tours. And he says, here, you can have it. I took it personally. So I said, really? And so sure enough, I put it. I needed a good picture of Sinatra, so I put it in the book. And then that kind of led to me asking afterwards if anybody had anything kind of interesting that might fit. And I actually came across a guy who was at a USO show, and he said, I got some autographs from the guy from the people at the USO show. So he had a an old piece of, I think it's South African currency, and it was signed by Bob Hope, Jack Pepper, and Francis Langford from a USO show. So I, I picked that up, and I said, i got to put that in there, because I didn't have a really good image of Bob Hope. And, of course, you think of the USO, you think of immediately Bob Hope. So uh, that's some of the neat stories that you know you kind of work into when you have the opportunity into a book like this. Again, I wanted it to be more of a scrapbook, something that you, know, you could sit down with your, your grandson or your son and take him through. This is what life was like here. And then going back to the Leadbelly story, your caption says, As an American folk and blues musician, Huddy Leadbelly Ledbetter became notable for his powerful vocals, virtuosity on the 12-string guitar, and the folk standards he introduced. He also played the piano, mandolin, harmonica, violin, and windjammer diatonic accordion since his death in 1949 of songs good night irene cotton fields and midnight special to name a few have been covered by some of the finest musicians in history he's pictured here in wilton connecticut with his wife martha promise ledbetter whom he married in february 1935 here's another musician that you can talk about you've got a picture from your collection of major glenn miller the gravestone of glenn miller yeah i wanted to work glenn miller in in here and of course there's a lot of great stories of him the one story that comes up all the time and i heard from one gentleman oh he used to play on the new haven green all the time and he actually had a building where he he this gentleman told me he said he used to walk by and listen to uh, glenn miller practice you could hear it out from the sidewalk and he and his date would sit out there for for hours listening but uh, i had to work in glenn miller and and uh, where I could pick up certain gravestones. And there's many, many memorials to Glenn Miller, including at uh, Grove Street. Uh, but there's also one in Arlington. So I, I worked them in where I could uh, because of the obvious connection. We talked earlier about the impact of women in Connecticut on the World War II effort. How about the impact of Indian and Native Americans? You've got two pictures in there about that, and they're great stories. Well, I wanted I wanted to mention the fact that, well, first off, you can see that the book goes to all sorts of different eth ethnicities and religions. It covers all of them because I don't want anything left out. But people forget about our Native Americans and the fact that they won Purple Hearts and Congressional Medals and things like that. And so I, I wanted to make sure. I mean, there's such an integral part of our, of our great Connecticut history that we – we want to constantly go back and, and reintroduce their their tales in in books like this so that they're not forgotten in any aspect. 
One of the captions says, Native Americans served on all fronts in the conflict and were honored by receiving numerous Purple Hearts, Air Medals, Distinguished Flying Crosses, Bronze Stars, Silver Stars, Distinguished Service Crosses, and three Congressional Medals of Honor. Here are two Native Americans sitting on a fence in Windsor Locks in 1941. And then a separate picture showing another Native American with a headdress on says, Since Connecticut is derived from the Indian word Quinnetuquat, how do you pronounce that, by the way? Uh, I'm not even going to try that, that one. one. I'll uh, leave that to you. <laughs> uh, you, you, can, you can Google that one. But anyway, it, it means beside the Long Tidal River, which I presume is the Connecticut River. It was not a surprise to learn of the state's great appreciation from many tribes, including Mahegan, Mohegan, Narragansett, Niantic, Nipmuc, Pequot, Scaticoke, Wappinger, Golden Hill, Pagusset, and others. According to resources, more than 44,000 Native Americans saw military service. Here, a Native American in Windsor Locks wears a beautiful headdress. So you come up with all these pictures. Tell me the sequence of how you compiled these in the book. Did you find the pictures first and then do the research to write accurate captions later? Or did you find the stories and say, I need a picture to back that up? It's a little of both. It's a little of both. First, I, I wanted to anchor it with some images that I felt were very, very, very appropriate, like the manufacturing images, uh, things that you had to have, pictures of governors, pictures of presidents and things like that. I, so I, I definitely wanted to have anchors in each one of the, each one of the sections. And, and where, when I came across, for example, there's a, a scene in there about Norwich on a rainy day during the war years. And I said, this is perfect because I, I, it's something that people look in a book, but they never say, well, here's a, here's a whole photo montage of a rainy day in Norwich in 1940. So I, I found the pictures and I thought, boy, that's what, that's what these, everybody remembers, things like this. Look at these streets, the police officer directing traffic. So I found the images. So I, I put them in, for example, because I, I like the whole story. I like the fact that you could just open up and, and there's a whole street scene from Norwich on a rainy day right in the middle of the war. And this is on the home front, Connecticut and World War II on the home front. So I really wanted to touch all bases, as silly as it sounds, from a rainy day to an ice cube tray. Mark Allen Baker's book, Connecticut and World War II, and believe it or not, the 200-plus pictures in this book, they're a picture of two cows. And the caption reads, Even these Suffield, Connecticut cows seem to understand that the state produced the best milk during World War II. I'm guessing there's a story behind that line, Mark. What I originally <laughs> had is that there were covers on top of this. You're very perceptive, Wayne. Uh, there were covers uh, on top of the milk bottles, and especially and I wanted to note the Torrington Creamery. Uh, so I had originally had insets of, of different tops of the milk bottles that everybody remembers. And then my publisher took some of them out. So I ended up, I, I wanted to cover the, the creamery and places like that. So I ended up with this photo rather than the original photo. So there is a story behind it. But at least I got the Torrington Creamery in there. So. We got the best milk right here in Connecticut during World War II. And it really is Connecticut cows. <laughs> so Mark uh, came in from Hebron this morning, and you've got a couple of pictures of Hebron here. I want you to tell the story about the Civilian Defense Aircraft Observation Post 52. It's on page 51, by the way. I see oh, you flipping okay. through the book there, but that's a cute little building. Well, it is, and, and I pass it all the time, and it, as I'm going through Hebron, as do many, many other people. And it was actually out on uh, top of a hill, out of Post Hill in Columbia, and this 
rather than I think it's one of the last. I, there may be as many as three, if if it's not the very last one. It actually it still exists, but it was on a hill, and they brought it from Columbia over, and it sits next to municipal building now, uh, outside of downtown there. And it's just a wonderful story on how people people forget that you used to man these observation posts. That civil defense was something that was important. So the, these little observation centers were not only along the coast, but were on hills here in Connecticut, and people, you know monitor them round the clock looking for aircraft or if it's near the water looking for possible you know submarines or you or you know that are off the coast or whatever they pick up on aircraft pretty famous tragedy in connecticut the hartford circus fire occurred during world war ii you've got four pictures of that in there so uh, tell me the the relationship there for the ringling brothers and barnum and bailey circus from july 6 1944 well you start going through the history and you, you start reading through all the old newspapers and when the circus fire uh when i came across that uh it was just i was very very moved by it so naturally i went out to the memorial and uh, look for myself and it was such a moving experience and and I'm so glad that they actually made such a wonderful tribute to the 160 people who perished in the fire but I I I started reading stories of the people who are overseas now that's the can you imagine you're on the front line and you, and you think you're fa you're there fighting for your family fighting for your country and you hear that your wife or daughter or family has now died died in a circus fire of all things and it's just uh, it just struck me and I said you know I have to include this I, I don't want to show the, the bad pictures, but I want to show the memorial and the fact that these people still still are remembered. And I still talk to people who have had family members that were at the, at the circus that night. Let me just get Today. an umbrella question here related to war bonds, war stamps, and Connecticut, the war years, license plates. I know. I want you know. It's funny what you recall. You recall match covers. You recall ticket stubs, uh, and a lot of people recall license plates, and they remember. Oh, I remember. You know that license plate was when I got my driver's license, and so I said, you know, why don't I do a little license plate? Because people always talk about how what it actually looked like compared to the plates today. So I did a little diagram and put that in there, and so that they wouldn't remember. So oh, that's right. And they had they had the little stickers, and here's how that worked. And and I really wanted to touch on anything that's going to spark a memory, so that you can take somebody through this and say, let me tell you about this, you know. And there's a, and naturally there'd be a story associated with it. Uh, here's great interviewing skills. Watch this, Mark. Speaking of spark, matchbook covers. Exactly. Exactly. Matchbook covers, I mean, people collect them, and, and they'll, they'll start looking at them and they'll say, my gosh, my first date was there. Uh, I remember going there, and, and I, I thought it was interesting, too, because some of the ones I included are still open uh, versus some of the ones that aren't, in, aren't included. But I was looking for everything. I wanted to choose stamps, uh, postage stamps that people all remember. Uh, the coins, remember reaching in your pocket and pulling out coins from that time period, because they'll all maybe emerge. Mercury Dime has something that sparks uh, the one memory from World War II that you forgot about. So I'm really looking to try to evo evoke memories with these images. Caption says, matches circa 1943. The exterior of a matchbook cover was usually imprinted with a producer's logo, often with the artistic decorations. It served as an ex inexpensive advertising promotional medium and was sold or given away. This cover had buy war bonds on the front and keep them flying on the back. Later, the Zippo lighter came along and changed everything. 
That's from your collection. Yeah, I've got a lot of these, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure everybody does. And naturally, I still have my my parents' ration book, as I mentioned. But but anytime you have some of these, and and it was a great story. As I started going through them and finding them, things like Patricia's Restaurant over in New Haven, or uh, the Cox's Restaurant down in Old Saybrook, I, I wanted to tell those stories that you know some of these places still exist today. And who knows? Maybe you can go in there and still talk to some of the people who remember back then, remember the war, remember coming during the war, and, and ask them about some of their stories. Well, you've got these great pictures of people, places, and things, but how about a few words about Chapter 5, the final chapter, which is pretty short, but it's called In Their Honor. What was your message? What were you trying to get across in that three-page chapter? Because it all boils down to this. It all boils down to duty, honor, country, and service. And I wanted to really, it's a, I love the Colchester monument that I included near the end. I love the picture of the GI, uh, standing in front of the, uh, religious statue. Uh, I, I felt that was the perfect way to, to end, but I also wanted the people to know about what the casualties were like during the war. And, and I have a listing from the War Department by county so that you could look up, you know, who was killed in action, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and all, and, you get totals on the bottom and so forth. But to realize that all the pictures that you just saw before were were sacrifices, were sacrifices in memory of the wonderful servicemen that were doing everything they could to protect our freedoms. And, and I had to make sure that I, that I included a special section just in their honor. Looks like Hartford County had the most casualties, New Haven County second, Fairfield County third, Wyndham County had 147 casualties, as in deaths. Uh, Tolland County, 66, and uh, they've got a listing or state at large, 38. Maybe they couldn't identify a county for that one, too. And, you know, I used to live in Fairfield County. I lived about a mile away from the Merritt Parkway. And you got a picture of the Merritt Parkway in 1941. Well, I know that was actually during World War II from our standpoint, but uh, because it didn't start until December. But it says the goal of the Merritt Parkway was to reduce highway congestion on Route 1 along the Connecticut shoreline, built primarily under the watchful eye of Connecticut State Highway Commissioner John McDonald. Donald, the Merritt was completed in 1940 and ran 37 and a half miles from the New York border to Milford, Connecticut. So the Merritt Parkway essentially opened up during World War yeah, II. Yeah, and a lot of people remember that specifically. They'll go back and they remember when it opened. They remember even the people that worked on it prior, uh, whether they were plowing or making some kind of changes to the to the outside curves or whatever. The stories are immense, and so I wanted to make sure I covered. Uh, a little bit about the merits uh, because of it was so popular and so you know it, it hit at the the right time at the right place. Tell me more about your your basketball history book, including the the Syracuse aspect of that. I went. I, I was fortunate enough to live in upstate New York and and have a restaurant at the time. Uh, this was in during the early 1990s, and I, I wrote about the history of Syracuse. Used to have a an NBA team called the Syracuse Nationals. And it wasn't just any team. It, it's still around today as the Philadelphia 76ers. But it's a fascinating story about a gentleman, uh, an Italian immigrant, who who works and saves all his money and buys an NBA franchise for $5,000. And and it ends up being the Philadelphia 76ers. And that same gentleman, is name, whose name was Danny Biasone, ends up 
you know, creating the shot clock that we're all so familiar with, and it produces an NBA champion in 1955. So the the story of the Syracuse Naturals was close to home because I had a restaurant and all the old players used to come in the restaurant, and I used to get stories firsthand from people like Paul Seymour about about how he would be elbowing somebody and who played dirty and who didn't play <laughs> dirty, and you know how they were out to get Dolphin him, and you know, and what George, what was it like to be under the boards against Mike and and you know the <coughs> excuse me the uh, the names and the scenarios were just endless. So I said I'm going to put this in a book. So. Well, book number twenty, and it'll soon be book twenty-one in the series by Mark Allen Baker, is called Connecticut in World War II from the Arcadia Images of America series. Lots of great pictures of Connecticut in and around World War II. Available at all the usual spots, including Amazon and Barnes and Noble and so forth. Two other books he's got here that he uh, passed along to me. Connecticut Families of the Revolution, American Forebears from Burr to Wolcott. And he likes boxing. Mark wrote The Fighting Times of Abe Attell. I can't say I've heard of Abe's name. No, and that's the reason I did that. It was precisely that. It's a wonderful family, two brothers who actually held simultaneous championships, but most people who hear that don't recognize him as a boxer, but as a gentleman who was involved in the 1919 Black Sox scandal uh, that everybody knows the name Shoeless Joe Jackson. So he's never had a biography done, and he's, he's just... A, an extremely interesting individual, so I was honored to do that. And uh, finally, it, it just came out. It's doing wonderful, and I'm I'm just so lucky to have the chance to tell the story. Mark, I love history shows, and I love talking about Connecticut and World War II, the name of your latest book. Great to meet you. Thanks for coming in this morning. Thank you very much, Wayne. Author Mark Allen Baker on WILI.